Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to be in verse 13 and 14 today. And again, if you would stand to your feet as we honor God's word. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. This is the word of God. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for your word. Lord, we pray right now that you would give us the courage to align our lives with the truth that we find in your word. We submit fully to that, Lord Jesus. And we ask you to continue to transform us from glory to glory into the beautiful image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So it's exciting that after a year and a half, we're quickly approaching the end of Paul's first canonical letter, his final remarks to the church at Corinth. And here he's going to draw some conclusions for us. When you come to the close of a letter, and this would really be any of us if if we were writing a letter, if we still wrote letters today like we used to uh, when I was a a teenager and all. Uh, Now we just use computers, I suppose. You want to make your final points succinctly, and you want to put a final exclamation point, sorry, uh, exclamation point on the subject matter. And quite often, your final words are the most important things that you wish to convey in a nutshell uh, so that the recipients of your letter will fully understand really what you're getting at. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. In verses 13 and 14, Paul gives five essential bullet points as clearly as one can possibly do so. So he teed my sermon points up today. He just teed it up for me, and all I got to do is use his outline this morning. He spent the previous chapters in 1 Corinthians in one form of rebuke or correction after another, and first he was dealing with the Corinthians' naughty behavior, okay, and then he was dealing with their faulty theology, and even the most beautiful, like, jewel of this book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, which we often refer to as the love chapter, it comes as a rebuke. It's beautiful, but it's cutting when you consider the context in why he wrote it. We all have to be mindful that rebuke and correction in the household of God is vital. People don't like rebuke and correction these days, do they? They just want the warm and fuzzies. But rebuke and correction is a form of tough love, and it's essential. In the opening statements of the book of Proverbs, in chapter 1, verse 7, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And and Scripture tells us in various places that you're foolish if you hate rebuke. And the point is we should love correction. 
We should wrap our arms around that rebuke because that is what makes us better people, more Christ-like when somebody holds a mirror up to our lives and shows us this part of your life does not align with the truth of Scripture. We should be thankful for that. Amen? Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He flogs every son whom He receives. Now, I don't know about you, but flogging doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound pleasant. Flogging is a form of rebuke. It's, it's, uh, it's getting a spanking like I got when I was a kid. And dad, like, man, took his belt off. You could hear it fly through those belt loops, that like sound. And you know it was on. We were about to do the circle dance, right? And, uh, and he, he did what he had to do. And I thank him for that because I feel like it was such a, it was such a vital role in making me the person that I am today, having that correction and discipline. So correction and discipline and rebuke and instruction, they're all required in the local church. And as the pastor of the church, it's my responsibility to adhere to those commands in Scripture. I don't get to pick and choose and skip the, the, the things that I don't feel comfortable with or the things that are hard for me. I have to do it. And you, as a member of this church, it's your place to humble yourself and receive the instruction with open arms, the knowledge and, and even the correction and the rebuke when it comes with humility, knowing that I'm not, I'm doing it because I love you. This is not a personal attack. I'm not trying to hurt you. It's a mandate from God and his word will correct us. And that goes for me too. I put my life out there for the, the other uh, men in the church that I'm accountable to. And if there's something in my life that doesn't reflect the truth of Scripture, they had better rebuke me. Y'all understand that? Can I get an amen from some of my brothers out there? Amen. Well, folks, um, I can't do anything about how you would receive correction when it comes or, you know, if I have to be put in that place to, to instruct you or correct you or even rebuke you. And quite honestly, these days, the usual behavior in the modern church is that people just get angry and they leave. They can't take it. They can't handle it. And we have to understand what Jesus meant for his church to be. And, and we cannot be the church that Jesus means for us to be without some form of church discipline correction and rebuke when it is called for. We are in a covenant with one another. I want you to understand this because this is not cultural. This is not even church cultural. These people in this church are in covenant with one another as the body of Christ. Just as you and your spouse are in a form of a, a marital covenant with one another, the church itself, when you when you bind yourself to the people in a local body, you're in covenant with them. You've committed to one another for years what's supposed to be years of service and sacrifice. It's not supposed to be a social club. We're entering into that, that a bond of grace under the banner of love in Jesus Christ together. And please understand the importance of that. And quite honestly, each and every one of us have to check our heart. If you face correction, here's the deal. Will, will you get angry and just abandon everybody in this room that you actually say that you love? Or will you accept the tough love just like you do in a marriage? We, we say for better or for worse. 
right? For richer, for poorer. It's the same kind of thing in a local body of Christ. You can get mad at me. Let's walk through it together. Let's figure it out. Let's, let's, let's love one another the way that Christ intended his church to love one another. Amen? We have the choice to humble ourselves, to receive the instruction, to receive the correction. And if we will do that, if, we'll, if we will walk through that tough love, it will mold us, it will transform us, it will make us better for the sake of the entire church body. All of us. Like, we have to get to the other side of the storm before we realize the beauty in the whole situation. But we have to be tough enough and committed enough to walk through that step by step and get to the other side. Amen? So I would ask you to, to, to consider that today. Problems are going to come. It's inevitable. We're people. And sometimes we're stupid. Okay? And we're very selfish. And, and we all make dumb decisions, I myself included. So, will you pray about being committed to this local body for, for, through thick and thin, rich or poorer, okay? For as long as the Lord would have you here. Amen? So, Paul has spent the majority of this letter of 1 Corinthians in this rebuke or correction mode, Okay? And he's bringing the whole thing to like a fine razor sharp point. And each of these precepts that we're going to be discussing, it's actually being drawn from the previous chapters in 1 Corinthians in order to clarify the main points of correction so that this local church can repent of where they've fallen short and then grow from there. That's the whole point. So these five points sum up what it means to be a productive church body. To have a permeating witness within the body, the local body, and outside the walls of the church. And to be a powerful church. And so thus I've named this sermon, Precepts of a Powerful Church. Precepts of a Powerful Church. Now, hopefully you're taking notes. The first precept that we're going to cover today is, be watchful. Be watchful. The Greek here is the word gregario, which is to be awake. To keep watch, to be vigilant, to be alive in a figurative sense. And this word is actually used 22 times in the New Testament. And, and of course, it's not always used in exactly the same way, but the variations give us a clearer understanding of what the word actually means and what it means to be watchful, to be vigilant, okay? Remember the Corinthian believers were all over the place in their behavior and their doctrine, and had they just been watchful, had they just been watchful for false teaching and, and, and sin issues and all of that, they could have circumvented all, so many of these issues that they were facing. Just by being watchful alone, they could have avoided it. So as you survey the use of this word in the New Testament, you actually find six areas of our walk with Christ in which we should be watchful or on the alert or vigilant, okay? So under the first point, first point, number one is be watchful. There's going to be six subpoints here, all right? And I want to point out today these six under that first heading of, of be watchful because uh, these have real life application for all of us. 
So the first one, and we'll just go, we'll say since number one is be watchful, we'll, we'll just go A, B, C, D, okay? So the first one is A, we are to be watchful of the schemes of the enemy. We are to be watchful of the schemes of the enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Listen to this. Firm in the faith. That's going to be important as we go further in the passage. Knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren in the world. So real time, right now, you're not the only one suffering. You're not the only one going through a trial. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ out there walking through the same thing. But you be watchful. You be alert. The forces of darkness are bent on derailing you in the process of your sanctification. And they will manipulate you and use your weaknesses against you. Are you listening? If you're already a believer, the next best thing that those forces of darkness can do is disqualify you and put you out of the fight of faith and leave you over on the sidelines. So be watchful. The way they do this is by appealing or attacking your flesh. As 1 John 2.16 warns us, 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes... The things that we see. Now, this is reminiscent of Eve in the garden. She looked at it. It looked good for food. It looked uh, pleasing and, and, and looked like it was good to eat. Okay? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. Any kind of lust in, in those areas of your life, that's not from the Father. That's the spirit of the world. For all that is in the world, it says, all that is in the world. And this actually leads us into the second area in which Scripture compels us to be watchful. So B, we are to be watchful against temptation. Watchful against temptation. In Mark 14, 38, Mark 14, 38, Jesus told his disciples this, our Savior. These are his words. Keep watching and praying. That you may not come into temptation. You don't want to fall to temptation? Keep watching and praying. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to understand the limitations of your flesh. I like what, you know, uh, I love when scripture says flee youthful lust. Like run away from it. The thing that kept me pure as a kid when I was a teenager I knew that is a place I do not want to go. I know that's a young lady I'm not going to hang around. Like I knew my limitations. I knew what was going to keep me pure. And I didn't allow myself to be around the wrong crowds, the wrong people, the wrong places. Because I knew those are the places I, I fled from. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I would suggest that you look at your own life and do the same. Steer clear of those areas in which you know you might stumble or even fall. Keep watching. Keep Praying, a continual, perpetual watching and prayer. The enemy is crafty and subtle. And sin leaks in through the cracks in your life. So often the cracks that you don't even know exist. The cracks that you don't even know are there. He knows it. 
Now, Jesus prayed. Remember, we read it before we began this morning. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that should be your prayer. Keep watch, pray, and rely on God, or your sin will seep in while you are unaware and potentially cost you everything. C, letter C. We are to be watchful against an apathetic attitude. We are to be watchful against an apathetic attitude. Mediocrity, a hard heart, an uncaring attitude, caring only about yourself and your family. This is just as devastating or can be and rebellious in the eyes of God as other sin. If you are apathetic, indifferent, insensitive uh, toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are honestly at great risk of falling into deception. You may think that you are spiritual. You've got it together. You may think that you have true life when in fact a major sign that you do not is the lack of care and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ first and foremost and others out in the world who may be in need. If you remember in our recent study of the church of Sardis in one of Christ's seven letters to the churches uh, in Revelation, I want to read this passage again from Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to read 1 through 3. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. Once again, Revelation 3, 1 through 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a name that you're alive. The reputation that you're putting out there is that you're alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, what does he say? Wake up! Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. There's work to do. Wake up. There's more to do. So remember what you've received and heard. Remember the gospel. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come to you. Here Christ Jesus likens apathy to slowly dying. They believe they're alive, but in fact they're dying a slow death. And he says, wake up. Bolster the things that you know to be true. But because of your attitude, they are dying within you. You must repent. You must remember the power of the true gospel. Why it changed you in the first place. Hold to those things. Keep them. Again, the dire consequences of not waking will result in missing out on Christ completely, all because you were unaware and you fell asleep. It's funny, I don't see anybody drow like being drowsy today or nodding off. Everybody seems to be awake. This apathetic attitude is a, it's a danger for all of us in this culture. We want to protect ourselves. We want to insulate our families, don't we? But I got to say, this is not God's design, and it's unwise. Some of you, your personality 
makes this aspect of your walk very difficult. And I'm looking at all the introverts in the room. When we first started a Bright Star in Texas, we had Introverts Corner. And during BRB, we said, you guys can go back in Introverts Corner and you don't have to talk, just you don't even have to look at each other, just go stand back there in the corner. And it was kind of tongue in cheek, it was a joke, but, but I understand that there are some of you who are, it's very difficult for you to put yourself out there. It's very uncomfortable for you to talk to people and, and be vulnerable with other people. But, you know, so you're naturally not a touchy-feely person. But here's the deal. That's not an excuse. It's not an excuse because we all have varying weaknesses. And even in this case, it is in our weakness. Listen, it's in our weakness that Christ shows himself mighty. Christ shows himself strong in your weakness. Give that to him and, and let him grow you in that weakness. These areas of natural vulnerability are exceptional opportunities for Jesus to show his strength in you and for the benefit of the entire church. D, letter D. We are to be watchful for false teachers. Watchful for false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Very clear statement. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Very clear. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. We see this right here in 1 Corinthians. Remember the Lord's Supper and people, people acting out, calling them spiritual gifts, and all of a sudden, out of the crowd, someone yells out that Jesus is accursed. How in the world does that happen? Well, you've opened the door. Paul says you, you, you've drank of the cup of demons. You bought into heresies. There are actually demonic forces working within the ranks of the body of Christ. And that's what he's warning against here. And my family and I, we were talking about this just yesterday. We often in the church today, we use terms to describe things that are nowhere to be found in Scripture in that particular context. We use language and have practices that undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. They actually contradict what the Bible says. But because it's accepted and widespread in church culture... That's the language that we use, and everybody does it. And you're sitting there thinking, why do we say that? Why do we talk like that? That's not even scriptural, right? We're clamoring at times for revival to such a degree that we throw the doors open and we accept anything that's labeled a move of God. And biblical discernment then goes right out the window and biblical discernment, folks, is a command. We must be biblically discerning. We must judge the fruit that a movement of God would offer. You can't tell if something's a revival in the midst of whatever that movement is. You must wait and be patient and discern and see by the bearing of the fruit whether or not it's an actual revival and whether or not it's an actual move of God. As the church of God, we do not want a a false manufactured type of revivalism. 
If we want revival, we want genuine revival. And when God brings revival, when God moves, it's undeniable that it's God moving. It's undeniable to those who would be against it. And it's undeniable to those who are a part of it. Jesus healed right in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes who denied everything that he did. And they even went so far as to say, well, he's casting out Beelzebub by the power of Beelzebub. How silly is that? So biblical discernment is so important. And and I know that there's a lot of folks out there judging people who want to be faithful to Scripture and be biblically discerning, but don't let that get to you. Church culture, church culture is not our standard. What the majority of Christians believe out there is not our standard of truth. God's word is the standard of truth. This sort of attitude comes as no surprise, though, if we actually know Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 3 through 5. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. Look, what's incredible about God's word are these prophecies that tell us far in advance this is what's going to happen. You read Romans 1? Have you, have you studied that passage? You looked at our society? You see how every single civilization and nation crumbles from the top down. It describes it right there in front of you. In 2 Timothy 4, 3-5, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Church culture wants to accumulate speakers to tell them what they want to hear. Only the true, genuine body of Christ, his true disciples, seek to know the words of God and God's word alone. It says they will turn away their ears from the truth, and instead they will turn aside to myths. Verse 5, but you, here we go again, be sober. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. What I was talking about earlier. This is a covenant family. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do what God has called and created you to do as the body of Christ. The first four of these be alert commands are to give you a heads up about negative influences on your life. These last two are different in a way. The next one we've mentioned already to protect against temptation, but here we'll use it in a positive sense as a source of powerful living for the believer. There's power in this. And the letter E is we are to watch and pray. We are to watch and pray. Prayer will strengthen us. It will strengthen our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Ephesians 6, verse 18. Ephesians 6, verse 18. Praying at all times. Praying at all times. With all prayer and petition in the Spirit. And to this end, here it is again. Being on the alert. Being on the alert with all perseverance and petition. For who? For all the saints. Pray for all the saints, having no regard for those in this room, avoiding relationships, keeping your brothers and sisters at arm's length is actually sinful behavior. The best way to combat that attitude 
folks, listen to me, is to make a list of every family in this church. And you could just do couples, you can do the head, household, whatever. But pray for them daily, if not that, at least weekly. Put it up on your wall, get on your knees and pray for your church family. It is impossible to have ill will towards another brother and sister in Christ when you are praying for them regularly because you are praying on their behalf. You are praying for their betterment. You are praying for them to draw closer to the Lord. And it's hard for you to have that, that conflict of interest when you're actually truly, genuinely praying for their good. The very last thing we're commanded to be watchful for in Scripture is this, F. Letter F, we must, we must be watchful for the Lord's return. We must be watchful for the Lord's return. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. The words of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. You get the urgency, you get that the idea that we should always be ready, we should always be on watch. And to echo that truth in 2 Peter chapter 3, Verses 10 through 12. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Once again, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Here's what he says. But the day of the Lord will come, again, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with an intense heat. What it's saying, folks, is look around you. It's all going to burn. It's eventually all going to burn. Don't, don't set your affections on the things of this world. That is meaningless. That is vanity. Set your eyes, fix them solely upon the person of Jesus Christ. Let him be your treasure on this earth and your reward will be in heaven. And, and just to give you a hint, your reward in heaven, more than having a family reunion with loved ones who've gone before, more than whatever re reward the crowns represent or whatever, your reward in heaven is that you're with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Your reward is that you get to spend eternity with the one who shed his blood for you. And he took the wrath of his own father upon himself to save you from an eternity in hell. That's your reward. You get to be with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So whether we're alive and remain when the rapture takes place, whether we're here, uh, whether our day of the Lord, because look, we're, we've all got a day of the Lord, whether it's going to be the rapture, Whatever it's going to be, whether it's the day that we, we take our final breath in this reality and we step beyond the veil of this physical world and immediately stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and we stand before him, that's our day of the Lord. And it's coming soon. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It's here one day and it vanishes the next in light of eternity. Either way, Peter's question is potent. 
in light of that day, knowing that that's ahead, listen, ask yourself this question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What is that truth? Uh, how does it bear an effect on your life? How are you going to live your life knowing that that day is ahead for you? And that's it's an eternal day. Okay, so those six be watchful mandates covers Paul's first point. So what about the other five precepts for a powerful church? Now, don't be looking at the clock. Don't worry, I can get through these next one fairly quickly, okay? Number two. So we're past the letters. Now we're, now we're at number two. Be firm. Be firm. We must stand firm in the faith. We've already heard that echoed in, our, in some scripture prior. We must be biblically discerning, recognizing the spiritually perilous times in which we live. We have to be biblically discerning, recognizing the spiritually perilous times in which we live. The church at Ephesus, Paul says, they were being blown around by every wind of doctrine. Blown around by every wind of doctrine. They wanted spiritual fire. And so they accepted anything that came down the pike. My wife often says, quote, I don't jump on bandwagons. You can ask my girls. She says that often. She holds true to that. She, she doesn't do it on social media. She doesn't do it the little pop-up cultural trends that you see, uh, you know, making their way through the population. She just doesn't do it. And I've actually learned a lot from her in that area. Number one, I don't really think anybody cares about me and what I looked like 25 years ago and, you know, whatever. I was much better looking back then. We should all be mindful, I think, of that, and we shouldn't fall prey to what I would call this pervasive pragmatism in our culture. Now, let me explain that word just for those of you guys. Surely you know what pragmatism means, but for those of you who don't understand what I'm saying in this particular context... Pragmatism, again, is, is basically like a cancer in the church. And it's the attitude of, if it works, it's okay. The ends justifies the means. So we can do whatever we want. We can compromise here and there. We can do all these different showy things, right, to get people in and put their rears in the seats. And then, unfortunately, the result is so often we manipulate people into false conversions and then we've got folks running around out there who are claiming to be Christians when in fact they were falsely converted because they weren't told the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most dangerous kind of pragmatism out there is the kind of pragmatism that we find in our churches. And here he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And it's essential for a church that is going to act in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians who are weak in the faith, they don't persevere. All those folks, all my friends that came to that big pizza night with the evangelist when I was a sophomore in high school, and every single one of my classmates walked the aisle, raised their hand, cried, all that stuff. The next week we were back at school. They were acting the same way they acted the prior week before. They were still sleeping around. They were still doing all the things that they did two weeks ago before they supposedly had the... the the Holy Spirit of God indwelled them. Really? 
You're telling me that the Holy Spirit of God can indwell someone? And then they just continue living in their sin as if nothing ever happened? I'm sorry, folks. That's not the way it works. They do not persevere. They won't take a stand on anything absolute, especially the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture alone is the ruler, okay? Not ruler as in a king, ruler as in a yardstick. It's the measuring tape of absolute truth in this world, and especially for all believers. And if you have no standard of truth, then you will have no true faith. Your faith will be a sham if, if God's word is not the standard of truth. In Jude 3, Jude calls it the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith. Also in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27, Philippians 1, 27, he writes, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your lives only worthy of the gospel of Christ. Who cares if you're worthy about anything else in this world? Live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm. Listen, in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith and the gospel. Again, this is what the family in the house of God should look like. We fight for the faith together. And if you don't love one another, if we can't even get that far, if you're apathetic towards one another and you have no standard of truth, how is it remotely possible to be in one spirit with one mind? How can you contend together if we are uncaring or if we all play by different rules of truth, of what's true and what's not? How are we going to have unity at all? We must unita, unit, have unity under the banner of truth itself or there can be no unity. And the standards for this church are clearly defined in the word of God. If we would only have the courage to believe them, to stand upon them, and yes, even to fight for them when it's necessary to fight for them. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says, stand firm, stand firm, and listen, hold to the traditions which you were taught. They're talking about what Christ taught and what the apostles taught. Those are the traditions he's talking about. It means the word of God, the gospel. Hold to the gospel. Stand firm. Number three, number three, be mature. Be mature. Now, obviously, Paul here says, act like men. That doesn't mean you ladies have to grow a mustache, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. He's referencing earlier in his letter to Corinth in imploring them to grow up and be spiritually mature. You are supposed to be spiritually mature. And early in this letter to Corinth, um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, so it's 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, here's what Paul wrote. You guys remember this. We covered it, but I want to I remind you. He says, Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are still not able, 
for you are still fleshly. You are still fleshly. I wanted to treat you as spiritually mature, but you were infants. So I fed you milk because you were too immature for the meat of the word of God. In this same book, in chapter 14, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he said to them, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but in your thinking be mature. In your thinking be mature. And it's painfully obvious when Paul's dealing with spiritually immature believers. He equates it to being fleshly. Spiritual babies are obvious and easy to point out as, as easy it is to point out real-life babies. We have a real-life baby in the church, okay? And uh, just to be clear, babies have an excuse to act like babies because they're babies, okay? Real babies don't feed themselves. Real babies cry about everything. They need to be served. They need to be coddled. They demand your attention. They demand your time. Spiritually immature Christians have many of those same attributes of real babies. They seldom feed themselves. They whine and complain about the way we do this or do that or this person or that person, what they said, what they didn't say. They want their needs to be attended to. They need attention. They need to be coddled. They are contentious. They make assumptions about others' motives. They cause divisions and factions in the church, just like we see the example of these believers in Corinth. Paul lines it out for us. Paul said they're babies, they're infants, they're offended, or they reject the meat of God's word, and they only want the milk, or they're only able to handle the milk. You know, pastor, give me the yummy stuff. Leave the stuff that's hard to digest, those hard truths. Don't talk about that stuff. I don't want to hear that stuff. I want to have the feel goods, right? I want to have the warm and fuzzies on Sunday morning. And I look, I want you to be encouraged when you leave here. But I actually be, believe there's as much encouragement in the rebuke in God's word as there is in the encouraging parts of God's word that make you feel awesome, right? But you see, their attitude is, I want what I want. And if I don't get it, I'm going to throw a fit about it. And it's pretty easy to point those folks out. They're just like spiritual toddlers. And again, babies have an excuse. Spiritual babies have no excuse. Paul says you're just being fleshly. That's what it is. You're, you're acting in your flesh. Paul said to the Corinthian believers in chapter 4, verse 21... Chapter 4, verse 21, he said, If you don't shape up and repent, that he's going to correct them. That's a paraphrase, but let me read actually what he says. He asks them, kind of like my dad, Do you want me to get the belt? I can tell you the affirmative answer to that question for me. Here's what Paul says What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or should I come with love? and a spirit of gentleness. I think we could all be affirmative in the answer to that as well. We'd rather not face the rod. I'd rather face gentleness. You see, Paul connects this lack of maturity to an actual lack of love. That's important to understand. Not just a lack of love for their brothers and sisters, but actually a lack of love for Christ. It's what I was praying earlier 
when we look at the person in whom we've got issue with, the problem is that you're looking at the person with whom you have issue with. What you need to be looking at is through that person understanding that, that, is, that Christ is the one you're submitting to. Christ is the one that you are serving. And the person in the middle is of no consequence as far as how they've offended you. Christ already paid for their offense on the cross. How dare you hold on to that? Amen? You see, maturity is an outward sign of a true inward change and an appreciation for God's mercy and grace that he lavished upon you and the people that you are so often uncaring about, the people you're so quick to dismiss or question their motives, those are Christ's precious people. These are the ones he paid for with his own blood. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to look around the room. Look around the room right now. Go ahead and look around the room. I know it's a little awkward, but look around the room. These are the people that he bought with a price. These are the people that he shed his precious blood for. How should you treat them? How should you love them? You should love them the way that he, he loves them. It should reflect his love. Keep that in mind. And Paul says, grow up. Stop acting like babies. If you love Jesus, you will love his people. And every person in this room needs to know that spiritual maturity fleshes out in reality, in real-time sacrificial attitudes for one another. It is not about you. This body is not about you and service to you. And an immature believer grows the same way a baby grows. They have to start with the milk and they grow into the meat of the word. 1 Peter 2.2 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. But you can't stay on the milk forever. Eventually you are going to have to digest the meat of the word of God. You shouldn't be a 35-year-old Christian still suckling a bottle of milk. Amen? The reality is that you, if you're rejecting the meat, you're a baby, and you need to first return to the milk of the word and accept that first, and then you, later you can handle the meat. So if you love God and his people, and this is the hard truth, if you love God and his people, you will strive to grow, and you will do whatever it takes to continue to grow. Number four, be strong. Be strong. Now, this one's tricky because the word strong actually means be strengthened. Be strengthened. And we don't have the means, you and I, to be able to do that ourselves. We can't strengthen ourselves on our own. What we can do is submit everything to Christ, pour ourselves out, humbly lay ourselves at his feet, and allow the powerful, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God to strengthen us. That's how it works. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. The Corinthian Christians were not acting in his strength. They were trying to live according to their own standards of spirituality. And guess what? Painfully, it did not work. They had fallen into a beautiful self-deception that they were right and everybody else was wrong. So factions and dissensions and conflict followed in, in its wake. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, Paul says, For you are still fleshly, 
since there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In chapter 10, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul warns those who are righteous in their own eyes, quote, Therefore let him who thinks he stand, stands take heed that he does not fall. I want to repeat that. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The cure for this sort of behavior is humility. Humility, and I cannot stress this enough. Humble yourself. Humble yourself often. Really, who do we think we are in light of who Christ is? Who do you think you are? Don't measure spirituality of other people by comparing them to you. What you need to do is compare yourself to Christ. That'll set you straight. And that'll make you love your brothers and sisters and have mercy and compassion on them even more. Because you'll realize when you look in that, in that picture of Christ and who he is, you'll realize how drastically you fall short. You can't help but be humbled. And you can't help but treat others with mercy and grace. Remember what King David begged God. He begged God. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me into the everlasting way. He begged God to keep him straight, to keep him right. He knew the pain of failure. He knew the, 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 the hurt of deep sin in his life and he never wanted to be back there again. Ask him, Lord, am I in danger? Lord, is there even a, a smudge of, of sinfulness in my life? Lord, Teach me. Break me, Lord. Keep me. I only want you, Lord Jesus. That's my prayer. Jesus, I only want you. I only want you. So are you self-deceived today? You'll never know until you pray the prayer and ask God to shine the light, his light of truth, on your arrogance, your pride, and your sin. You have to have the courage to do that. You have to ask him to shine the light on your sin, to search you and expose the things that do not reflect his holiness. Again, the milk and then the meat of the word of God brings transformative change, bearing genuine, powerful works in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I quote this a lot. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17? John 17, 17. In case you have any doubt about the process of sanctification and how the Spirit of God washes us in the power of the Word of God. Here's what he prayed. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Let there be no doubt. In Colossians 1, 9 through 11. Colossians 1, 9 through 11. Pay attention to this passage and, and, and take note of what gives us strength and maturity. Verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So where do you suppose that knowledge and wisdom and understanding comes from? It comes from God's word. It comes from scripture. Why do we need full knowledge? All spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, 
because we want to grow strong. We want to be mature in Christ. We want to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And then look at the rest, beginning in verse 10. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. To please Him in all respects. All respects. Everything I say, everything I do, we want to please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. You see, your knowledge of God will expand the more and more you submit yourself to the washing of the word of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Remember, he strengthens us according to his might for the attaining of all steadfast and patience. So God's word leaves no doubt. There is no secret knowledge. There's no unlocking some spiritual force in order to become super spiritual and, and, and step up in, your, in this ultimate spirituality or new reality of a spiritual being. God's word alone is sufficient. It's all that we need to grow in full maturity and full strength and full wisdom to bear fruit in everything that we do. God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. Finally, the fifth precept for a powerful church. The final Precept for a powerful church. Be loving. Be loving. This is the one precept that encompasses all of the other precepts. This would be like the tortilla and all those other ones are like stuffed in the middle. And it's just this awesome precept burrito. Okay. It really comes down to the two greatest commands. Love God and love his people. Love God and love his people. In fact, the wording here leaves absolutely no wiggle room. Quote, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And the entirety of the rebuke of the book of 1 Corinthians can be summed up in his beautiful poetic rebuke in chapter 13, which again we call the, the love chapter. Their immaturity, their jealousy, their conflict, their lack of moral fortitude, their apathetic attitudes, their erroneous theology, every single bit of it, every issue can be summed up by their lack of love either for Jesus Christ their Lord or their lack of love for their fellow Christians in that church. All of it. If they had only loved one another and loved Christ the way he asked them to do, they wouldn't have had all those different issues. Everything we do should be done in love. Love complements and balances everything. Love, comp, love softens the pain of correct, correction and rebuke. Love keeps our being firm in check so that it does not become hardness of heart. Love keeps our being strong in check so that it does not become a strict domineering legalism. Love keeps our own growth and maturity in check so that it does not become arrogant or proud, but gentle, considerate, and compassionate. Love keeps our desire for discernment and right doctrine in check so that we do not become immalleable, unbending, dogmatic, and self-righteous. Paul made it very clear in his first letter to the Corinthians, they must get their love right. And if they get their love for God right, and they get their love for others right, Everything else will fall into place. And folks, that's the same for you and I. If we can get our love for God right and we get our love for others right, everything will fall into place. In closing, in closing, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. I love when the word says, above all. Leaves no doubt, right? Saying this is paramount. This is, this is a big deal. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. We don't hold wrongs against one another. We don't keep a record of wrongs. Those, those things that, those offenses of the past, we don't hold on to those. Be fervent in your love for one another. You know, God's agape love never fails. His love never fails. My question to you is, do you believe this? Do you believe that, that God's word never fails? You and I can never love the way God loves. The only way we can is with him. There's no way we can love the way he loves without help from him. You need Jesus. You all need Jesus. And you all need him desperately. And you need him in your life every single day. In 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 4, 7, it says this. You've heard this before. We love because he first loved us. We would not have the ability or the capacity to love at all whatsoever, except loving ourselves. We're really good at that. We're all very good at loving ourselves, but we would not have the capacity or the ability to love unless Christ first loved us and he opened our eyes to our own sinfulness and he opened our eyes to the beauty of the gospel and what his love really means. And if we understand his love, then we can love others. So my question to you this morning is, do you know him today? Have you come to the point where you've repented of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you followed him with reckless abandon? Have you given him everything? Is he the priority of your life? Is he all you care for and hope for? Is he the treasure of your world? Is that Jesus Christ in your life? And listen, in the context of this local church, if this church is going to be a powerful witness for Christ, if it's to be all that he has intended us to be as his local church, folks, let me just put the exclamation point right here. We must be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like mature believers, be strong and strengthened, and let all that we do be done in love. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.